So welcome back to another issue of Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. I'm Augustine Colebrook, and my co-host, Isha Chiapanelli here. (laughs) (laughs) And we have fun talking about and with experts in the field of um, safe, sustainable, successful, fulfilling birth, uh, motherhood, all those great things. Today we have an amazing guest. Um, and I've known her for a number of years because she came into my prenatal office pregnant. And we got to meet from the very beginning and then discover who she actually is, which is an amazing award-winning journalist. That's right. The amazing or marvelous Jennifer Margulis. And her yeah, writing right. has appeared in many of the nation's most respected publications. The New York Times, The Washington Post. Uh, she's been on the cover of Smithsonian Magazine. And then our very own Augustine was featured in her book, Your Baby, Your Way, taking charge of your pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting decisions for a happier, healthier family. And who doesn't want all of those things? So let's welcome Jennifer. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, I am an award-winning investigative journalist. I'm working right now on my ninth book. Um, And actually, you and I met because I interviewed you for a book that I was writing called Your Baby, Your Way. Actually, we met before that. Do you remember? Oh, maybe when I was pregnant with my fourth child about a little more than 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah, you came into my midwifery office. <laughs> I did. You're right. And I got I got bogged down by all the papers I was supposed to sign. <laughs> That's not true. I didn't do papers. <laughs> well, no, but the state does, which maybe is something we can talk about. I mean, you yeah. don't. You run an amazing midwifery program, but there are all these legal you know, hurdles that women have to go through or that midwives have to go through. And if they don't, they get hunted down. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm a good example of that. Well, so um, you've written so many books and your latest book. Tell us about that one. The book that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Tell us. Or, um, well, so the last um, three books that I've done have been about health um, for over 15 years, I've been researching and writing about children's health and women's health and, you know, how to have a healthy baby, how to um, have a positive pregnancy, that kind of, that's been the focus of my research. But I'm actually working on a book right now that is more of a memoir. It's a book that's based on the life and the work of my mother, whose name was Lynn Margulis, who was a very prominent microbiologist. Some people would say she was the most important microbiologist of the 20th century. And she was an evolutionary microbiologist. A lot of her theories actually have huge ramifications for what's going on in today's world and for human health. Although I have to say, my mother didn't really like humans. She was very interested in microbes. <laughs> and um, she, you know, she, wanted, she spent her, her days looking under a microscope. So the book I'm working on right now looks at, um, it's called A Brief History of Life. And it looks at the history of life on Earth through her eyes and her unique and interesting childhood growing up on the south side of Chicago. My mother married the astronomer Carl Sagan when she was 19 years old. So 
she, um, and she, you know, she had a very colorful and interesting personality. So I'm weaving together my relationship with her, her science and what it was like to be a rebellious and um, iconoclastic scientific thinker doing a woman in a man's world. So that's what the new book is. Oh about. my God. This is going to be such a read and what a story I, I've heard about your mother before and I can't wait to see it, um, th this story. Uh, and congratulations on all of your successes. Um, we did get to talk for one of your books. I'm on this little section about choosing natural birth in um, one of your books. And then you wrote a book um, about babies. Um, tell us about that one. Well, so I have a book called Your Baby, Your Way, and the subtitle is Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthier Family. And that book actually looks at um, pregnancy, childbirth, and all of the decisions that someone needs to make, a, a parents need to make during the first year of life. It's really an investigative book. I mean, it's a book for parents, but it's also a book for policymakers and teachers and educators and sociologists, and it really kind of looks at the systemic problems in America's maternity care system. And then, and you know, and then the book that I wrote after that, I, I co-wrote with a doctor named Paul Thomas, and that one is called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and it's a book that looks at children's health. Um, we also start in pregnancy. Prenatal care and pregnancy are good places to start when you're wanting to have a healthy family. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's such a body of work you have now. And, um, and the, the research that it takes to understand the problems um, in maternity care and then on through delivery and, and pediatrics and lactation, we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Um, it's really extensive. And, and being an investigative journalist, I think you went to Columbia. Um, you've, you've had this long, illustrious career. Um, not very many journalists from Columbia are obsessed with pregnancy like you are. Can you tell us what got you into that? Yes. What made you focus? I didn't actually. My my brother is a Columbia grad. I went to undergraduate at Cornell University. Oh, Cornell. So I Sorry. yeah no that's okay. You were close, but I I'd rather be upstate than in the city. Um, <laughs> okay. But you know it was interesting because I I knew I always wanted to be a, a parent. Like I always wanted to have kids. That was something that just felt so so important to me ever since I was really young. And I also knew that I really wanted to you know have a career and kind of put those things together. And I didn't really understand what all of that meant. So I had, I got pregnant with my first child when I was a graduate student at Emory University. And um, so I was studying in Atlanta and my husband and I were both graduate students. We had very modest income as you can imagine. Um, and we had, I had thought about having a home birth, but Augustine, I did not know a single person who had ever had a home birth. I had never talked to a home birth midwife. Um, and I was told that home birth in Atlanta was illegal. So, and I didn't really know better. This was before the internet. So it wasn't like you could just jump online and figure things out, right? Um, and so we ended up, because of our insurance, we ended up having the baby in a hospital in Atlanta, in Crawford Long Hospital. And um, it was a really hard situation. I left the prenatal visits and I would sit in the parking lot and start crying. I felt like I was being so belittled, emotionally belittled by the people who were supposed to be providing me with prenatal care. There was so much shaming and we can talk about that more, but you know, and then I had this baby in the hospital and I had really my whole life wanted to have a baby. And 
as it was a really, really difficult birth. It was emotionally and physically, in retrospect, I understand now it was very abusive. I mean, there was a moment when this nurse came in, you know, I'd been in active labor for 15 hours. I'd been having contractions every few minutes apart. And at first the doctor told me I wasn't in labor and I had to have a speculum exam. And it was one o'clock in the morning. I found out later that there was only one bed free. And I said, I didn't want anybody's taking a speculum and sticking it up my vagina. I was really, I mean, I was having these intense contractions. And I said, how could I not be in labor? Like I was literally standing in a puddle of amniotic fluid. And she said, well, you know, if you, if you don't, if you refuse to submit to this, then you might have a ruptured bladder and your baby will die. I mean, she actually said those words to me and, or she said those words to my husband, I guess, on the phone, I have to say, this doctor didn't feel like coming in, right? And, you know, I was obviously in active labor and the nurse there could see that there was amniotic fluid just dripping onto the floor. So they finally capitulated and, you know, we got into a room and, my husband is this incredibly mild-mannered patient person, and he at one point just started yelling at this doctor on the phone. But anyway, I hold this gorgeous, beautiful baby with these huge ears that stick straight out just like my husband's, you know, in my arms. Finally, after so many hours of labor, there was another moment 15 hours in that I was starting to tell you about where the nurse, um, you know, checked me, and she did it. She was really annoyed. She was really impatient. She put her fingers up me as roughly as she could. She takes off the glove. She looks at me disgustedly and she goes, nothing, not even a dimple. Meaning that I had been in active labor for 15 hours, every few minutes having contractions. And she said, I didn't even dilate a dimple. And she walked out of the room. And this was the way that I was treated in the hospital. So I have this baby it's, I had total Stockholm syndrome. I thought like, oh, thank goodness I had the baby in the hospital because so many things went wrong. And if I hadn't been in the hospital, I would it wouldn't have been safe, right? And then we take the, our beautiful baby home as quickly as we possibly could because we wanted to get out of there because I feel like a hospital is for sick people. And I was a healthy person with a healthy baby and I wanted to go home. And our insurance company denied to pay for the hospital birth. So we, one of the things, the major barriers for us at that time to even talking to home birth midwives was we knew we would have to pay for it out of pocket. And my husband and I were students and we didn't have any money. And so I'd been told it was illegal. I didn't think I could afford it. We made the decision to go to this hospital and be with these people because that's what our insurance told us to do. And then the insurance company said, oh, you know, we're going to deny your claim because you're, you're, Pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. I'd been, I'd had same insurance for four years at while I was in graduate school, and I just, you know, here I am with this newborn, like literally crying on the phone, waiting for hours, trying to deal with bureaucracy, which is at any time so stressful, and the absolute worst thing that you would do to a new mom. And I, I thought to myself, wow, I never want to make a decision based on money again. But in any case, all of this happened and I really blamed myself. I really felt like it was my fault. I felt like my body didn't work. You know, maybe I wasn't a good patient. The hospital doctors had saved my life. I mean, I, it sounds so ridiculous to say this now, but that I was 29 years old, which is really old enough to know better, but I really didn't know better. And I finally started looking into it and realizing that what had happened was a systems failure, that I had not done anything wrong, but that I had given birth in a country, aka the United States, that has the most expensive healthcare system in the, in the entire world, and some of the worst outcomes, especially when it comes to maternity. 
maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates and that what had happened to me was an example of the inequities and the incredible sexism and a system that is not you know grounded on best evidence or science or what's in the best interest of a mom and a baby and it was my interest in that that started me you know using all of my research skills that i had learned in graduate school um, and applying those skills towards un better understanding what moms and babies face in this country when you know they're coming into the world mm. It's such an intense story. I think most of us who have this deep passion for exploring and exposing, uh, no pun intended, the, the inequities and the, the, the challenges with the maternal health care system and the entire health care system in the United States are because we had a poor outcome. I'm so sorry for yours. Thank you for sharing it. I think um, some of our listeners will really identify. Um, I just listened to a podcast actually with uh, Dr. Nathan Riley. Um, and uh, Dr. Brad Boots Taylor in Atlanta. Um, Hermine was also on the call, um, Hermine Hayes Klein. And they, they talk about this coercion that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years or so, where it went, we as a society kind of went from this idea um, it's your body, and it's, of course, it's your baby, and um, I, you hire a doctor, and the doctor advises you to now. Um, it's almost the complete opposite. The doctor is centered and they make all the choices and all they make the calls. And then they sometimes don't even inform the vessel holding the baby what's next. Um, and of course, this is the ripe breeding ground for obstetric violence, um, for lack of informed decision-making, for disempowering, enter, entering motherhood disempowered. Um, and it's, it belongs in that same category of othering, right? So when we other someone, we can't humanize them, we can't connect with them. And it seems to me that we've had this bigger and bigger, broader divide between doctors and the rest of humanity. Um, I know you've seen this, and, and yet you also have found some extraordinary doctors in our culture. Um, I know that you wrote a book with Dr. Paul Thomas. Um, tell, us, tell us more about like, what your research has shown us and the difference between the thought process, between humanizing someone and being like, of course it's your choice. You are the sovereign decision maker to being like, no, it's my choice. Do you see that? Do yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think what's really interesting is that um, we know that women and children and in fact, anyone who's, who has any kind of health thing going on, that we have the best outcomes when we have partnering. So when our health professionals, whether it's a doctor or a midwife or a chiropractor or, you know, an acupuncturist, I mean, for those people who are more alternative, when, when, when the decision-making is happening together, when you're partners, and so when the, the common enemy is whatever, you know, the, I mean, I'm saying enemy because if you're sick, if you have a health problem, then the common enemy is overcoming that together. But what happens because we have a for-profit healthcare system where the doctors need to get you in and out as fast as they can. I mean, they are there, you have questions, they're opening the door and basically telling you, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. 
and they're on to the next patient. And, you know, that's what happens. Boom, boom, boom. And what is it? The average time that a doctor spends with a patient is less than 12 minutes. Um, that, that's Six a statistic in obstetrics. From, in obstetrics, I'm not surprised. I was going to say that's a statistic from a few years ago, so I might be <laughs> misquoting. Yeah, less than, less than six minutes is standard. Yeah. So, I mean, what's incredible, and I don't know if your listeners are home birth um, home birthers or if they want to be the incredible difference between the time a home birth midwife spends with a with a with a client and the time an obstetrician I mean a home birth midwife will spend an hour an hour and a half and they want to know the whole person they want to they want to ask you what you ate for breakfast and how you're feeling about your your partner if you have one and what your concerns are and what your interests are and how your hips feel and you know that's the kind of stuff that absolutely cannot happen in our mainstream medical profession and what ends up happening is honestly some very good doctors end up doing very bad things and i'm not saying that they're doing them on purpose i mean i'm not somebody who thinks that doctors are trying to hurt people because i think by and large they absolutely are not and I yeah i feel the same way and in fact I, I, it's really fascinating it's about tracing the policy and the money and so these six minute visits are actually mandated by insurance companies because the rate of reimbursement is tied to time Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of things weighing on people. And that, you know, that's another reason why we tend to, doctors will do um, uh, uh, cesarean births because all the time when they're absolutely not indicated, in fact, they're, they're you know, the majority, uh, Stu Fishbane says over 600,000 cesareans a year are unnecessary if you just do the math. So, but they do them because they're fast and they're convenient and they're controllable and they're schedulable. And the thing is like a mom and a baby, that's all the things that we're not, you know, you're waiting to have a baby. You are not fast, convenient or schedulable. And <laughs> it doesn't, it's fitting around to peg into a square hole and it does not work well. This country's very poor outcomes when it comes to maternity, you know, maternal health, um, especially among disenfranchised people, among people of color, among lower income people, our bad outcomes have to do with a failed system. And that's not what the mainstream is going to tell you. They're going to tell you that women are too fat, you know, um, too diabetic, um, smoking cigarettes, whatever they do, they're going to tell you that it's the fault of the women themselves. And what I, and that's how I felt after the birth of my first baby. And then what I came to understand after three years of researching my book was that it's not the fault of the women, it's the fault of a system that's broken that we need to fix. Yeah, it really is. I, you know, I just, um, I, I got my master's degree in systems level work, um, maternal child health, um, and specifically systems level thinking. And it's, it, to me, I also have another part of my life in research of um, trauma and domestic violence and narcissistic um, control. And when I overlay these systems level thinking issues, um, you know, what's happening in American maternity care is actually very akin to what happens in systematic narcissistic abuse in families. And it's all about power and control. Um, and I, I think when we use some of the tools that help to um, center the, the, the abuse victim in, in domestic violence, we can apply them actually in obstetrics when we center uh, the birthing person and allow them to um, have a voice again, essentially. Um, one option, like you mentioned, is to just opt out of the system. 
Um, and there are certainly more and more people doing that. Um, in a 10-year period from 2002 to 2012, um, the home birth rate went up 40% in the United States as a result of this exodus from the system. Um, and then there are many who are also trying to change the system from within. Um, and there are fantastic nurses and doctors, um, midwives, uh, nurse practitioners, all kinds of, of hospital-based folks who are trying to change the system. And yet, many of them um, are being harassed, investigated, sued, fired. Um, and, and you and I follow those cases, I think, um, Keisha and I have talked about how the system is failing the providers too. Um, and all of this kind of amounts to a really toxic environment. I mean, if we talk from like trauma communication, like toxic relationships are very, very um, dangerous for our health. Um, and when we add that to toxic relationships during one of the most crucial times in your life, um, in your healthcare, it's quite quite alarming. Um, and the outcomes mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, familially in legacy. I mean, every way we look at it is, is really quite devastating. Um, and I think we, we talk about the problems a lot on the show. Um, and Jennifer, obviously you're deeply focused on the problems, which is why you do your research. Um, but what we really want to do is find the solutions. Um, so you've, you've done a lot of that research, I'm not even sure quite where to begin. Do you know where to pick that up with some of these solutions? Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, you were mentioning about um, toxic relationships and, and violence and, you know, um, and I think one of the things that happens is it becomes internalized, right? So you don't realize that you're in a system that, um, that's oppressing you, right? And you identify with your oppressor, which is what happened to me, if I can put it in those terms, after the birth of my first child. And it took, um, it took a home birth midwife, actually, who um, is based in Eugene. And my best friend got me a subscription to Mothering Magazine, which unfortunately isn't published anymore. But it used to be such a breath of fresh air. Every time the magazine came in the mail, I felt I would read it from cover to cover. And I had some questions. Um, actually, the questions were about, about vaccines. Um, and I called my the person who had recommended to my best friend that she buy me Mothering Magazine, which was a home birth midwife in Eugene. And I told her the, the abbreviated version of my birth story. And she was is this very matter-of-fact person who doesn't mince words. And she says to me, Jennifer, an animal in nature who feels threatened closes back up again, tries again later. And, you know, it was this aha moment for me because I had been saying, oh, gosh, Colleen, it was so good that I was in the hospital. My birth, you know, my, my labor wasn't progressing. And, I, you know, what would I have done if I hadn't been there? And she was like, Jennifer, like reality check here. And, you know, I was speechless. I just, it just, it resonated for me in a way that made me think, oh gosh, I need to learn more about this. But the good news is, and you can get into a lot of gloom and doom, which I don't like to dwell on, but I do like to expose because once you know that a system is hurting you and you know, it's not your body that's the lemon, it's the system that's broken, that gives you so much power to change it. Whether you decide to work within the system or you decide to just get the heck out of Dodge, right? You can change it from the inside or from the outside. And I mean, that's what women have to do. They have to take back their pregnancies and take back their babies. Take, understand, you know, fundamentally that you know more about your body than anybody else. Even 
the kindest, gentlest midwife in the world is not in your body. <laughs> You're in your body and you know more about your baby than anyone else. And your baby knows more about you than anyone else. And you have this incredible relationship with the baby. So, you know, I, I think I have four children and I think that with each pregnancy and birth, I learned something totally different and profound. And with my last one, I did things the most outside the box. And for me, because I am this type A personality, I come from a scientific family. As I told you, my mom was a biologist, my dad was a chemist, and everything was rational, 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 go, 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 type A. And one of the things I did with the last pregnancy, which I guess is when we met, as we were saying at the beginning, yeah, is I would, I would basically, you know, take a bath almost every night and just, you know, sit in the water and just think and process and talk to the baby in my head and think about the birth and tell myself these affirmations. And that's probably all stuff that, you know, a lot of people do anyway, but I didn't come from that background. I, I grew up eating Fruit Loops and Chef Boyardee, like mainstream, right? <laughs> And just, and I, you know, I, cause I knew I really wanted to have like the most centered birth that I could. And so spending that time, it was my version of meditating. I, I, for years read about the research about the benefits of meditating. I am not a good meditator, but <laughs> going in the bathtub and saying these affirmations and really just getting to the place where I could envision exactly what I wanted and how things were going to go, you know, and that was incredibly empowering for me. So Back to this question about what are the solutions. First of all, surrounding yourself with good positive energy and with people who believe in you and believe in birth um, makes a huge difference. I mean, we know that just having somebody else in the room with you during your labor is going to shorten your labor, make your experience of it better, whether you're in any situation, right? Um, and having yeah, in fact, there's that fantastic Marshall Klaus quote. Um, uh, he uh, he was a doctor, a pediatrician in, um, I think a pediatrician in Washington state, I think. Um, he said, if a doula were a drug, it would be unethical not to use it. Mm, that's that's such great. a great quote, like yeah. reminding us of how important it is to have a caring somebody with you. Absolutely. And, that, and that's hard. I mean, I don't know what you all, what your background is, but you know, for me, I was, I had said that I really wanted to be a mom, but I also had a lot of really mixed feelings about that. Like I had, I, I was the fourth of four children. I have three older brothers. You know, my mom was a very high powered working person. And so like, I didn't, I mean, I remember this is kind of sad, but I remember going to a prenatal yoga class and the woman, the older woman who was teaching the class was like, okay, everybody put your hands on your belly. This was with number baby number one. And then say the word ma. And they said, and they, she was like, ma is a very comforting sound. And I, I actually left the class because for me, ma wasn't I, as much as I loved and adored my mom. She was, you know, she was a special case and it wasn't a comforting sound for me. Like to say, so you also are carrying, you know, you carry your family of origin stuff with you, I think. And, and my parents, I mean, I, who I was close to, they had never ever considered, you know, that home birth would be a safe or a, a good idea. So I was also with my second, when my second was born, my dad called and, you know, and my husband is so polite and everything. And I, I started screaming at my husband, get off the fucking phone because I was in full blown labor. And he's like, uh, uh, gotta go, Nick, gotta go. You know, you know, Jennifer's in labor. And it's anyway, you know, there's just a lot of things like that, that you really have to work through. But, but 
so I made the mistake with the first child of thinking I wanted my mom there because of course you sort of want your mom there, right? Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a loving and nurturing mothering kind of a mom, that's a good choice. If you have a mom who sits in the corner literally grading papers and writing a manuscript and completely ignoring you like you don't exist, having her in the delivery room might not be the best option, you know? <laughs> yeah. I always say, like when moms are considered, I always say, um, you're not going to have a magically new relationship with your mother in labor. It is still the same mother. So if you don't get along now, you're unlikely to get along in labor. Well, um, so I love what you said. And actually, I want to go back to it for just a quick second, because what you said is kind of revolutionary. Um, I want to bring Keisha in because Keisha and I were talking about this um, a couple episodes ago. Um, you are your own best expert. You are the expert of your baby. Like, that's kind of revolutionary. I know it seems like for those of us that really like get that, it's like, duh. <laughs> but, but actually around the country in many circles, that's revolutionary. Keisha, what do you think about that? I think it's the absolute truth. I mean, I know people who have taken their, their child into a pediatric appointment, been there before with the doctor and the doctor doesn't know the child's name. You know, you're an in our system, and I think in most systems, you're a number. That's just a, a natural byproduct of a large population in an industrialized, developed country. You're not going to get one-on-one -on -one care. And a doctor is not going to know your child better than you, and they certainly don't know your body better than you do. It's, it's really... And it's not the way it used to be. It used to be that we did form relationships with providers. Um, yeah, a couple I, of weeks ago, we talked about this, um, um, how the doctor system changed in the 70s, Keisha. We talked about how um, we used to have family practice doctors and, you know, you would see your doctor for anything and the whole family would. And then in, in the 70s, we became highly specialized and even subspecialized um, where the doctor only sees, you know, a, a, an organ or maybe a system in your body, but doesn't see the whole person anymore. Um, and certainly we lost midwifery almost a hundred years ago um, and, and lost that holistic approach. And this compartmentalization, um, this, you know, specialization has stopped the humanization of the care. Um, so Jennifer, like one of your first main points to help solve this toxic pregnancy, toxic motherhood reality is that we would see people that saw us for the people that we are. Exactly. So, I mean, if you're a first time, you know, mom, and especially if you're younger and you don't have the confidence, it's very hard to believe those words. Like, you know, your body the best and you know your baby the best. Cause you're like, wait a second, I've never had a baby and I've never met this baby. And how could I possibly know? But the truth is, is that, that those, those, those maternal instincts are incredible. I mean, human bodies and especially women, women are amazing. And the things that our bodies know how to do. I mean, you've all seen now, you know, some video clip on TikTok or Facebook or whatever of the mom driving to the hospital whose baby just gets born because they don't make it on time. And they're like, she's like, uh, honey, you know, you got to pull over. And, you know, everybody sort of looks at those and says, oh, what a miracle. And it's, it's like, no, actually, it's not a miracle. We've you know, we are made to have babies and we, we know what we need to do if we can get out of our own way, which I know sounds a little bit, you know, crazy, but it's... No, it's true. 
Yeah. It's so true. Sarah Buckley, um, uh, an, an Australian um, provider, actually, um, she wrote a, a great article and a whole book and a whole thing. And, and she calls it, um, you know, this ecstatic experience, like that you're you're outside yourself, but you're in yourself. Um, and then I also love, um, I think it was Pam England who um, wrote about extraordinary birth. Like that's how we get extraordinary. You know, it's mm -hmm. actually, it's just, it's actually extraordinary. And it is incredibly ordinary for your body to work while having a baby, whether you're in a hospital or at home or in a car. Like actually it works. That's why we have an overpopulated planet. It works so well. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, going back to that, like it's just an ordinary process that is extra for that family. So it's an extraordinary process. But um, yeah, and I love those, those clips where the dad doesn't actually pull over. He's filming <laughs> and driving. And I'm like, Anything, the yeah. most dangerous part of this whole scene is that you're driving. <laughs> Stop yeah. driving, yeah. you know rushing to get somewhere is not making it safer in that moment when a baby comes, a baby comes. Well, so, um, yeah, go for it. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's, which is not to say that, so yes, you know, birth is natural. Birth is an emergence, not an emergency. Birth does not need to be medicalized. All those things are really true. And that doesn't, all of that being true doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of things that you can do to help your, enhance your natural's body ability, your, your body's, excuse me, natural ability. And so, you know, some of those things sound so basic, but they're not. Like, if I could say something really revolutionary, Augustine, I would tell people to eat real food. And, you know, you can roll your eyes now and your listeners can be like, what is she talking about? Of course I eat food. But the truth is almost everyone in America eats edible food-like substances. We don't actually eat food. We eat highly processed food-like substances. And I remember interviewing uh, a woman who said she thought she was really healthy in her first pregnancy. Her idea of real food was to eat granola bars. And she actually worked with a nutritionist who was telling her to eat granola bars. And, you know, newsflash, granola bars are not real food. And candy yeah. and Coke and cake and bagels, none of that stuff is real food. That's all processed junk. And so if we want to enhance our body's natural ability, we need to feed our bodies really good food. And it's also a problem because, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about sort of the the racism and the elitism in our medical system, which are rampant and need to be addressed and the economic disparities. And so many people live in food deserts where they cannot get food. They can buy Twinkies, they cannot buy bananas. You know, I love to tell people to take bananas and give their kids bananas because they come in their own packages and they're just a wonderful, healthy, whole food, you know. But if you can't buy those, what are you gonna do? So. You know, and I mean, that's one major thing. Another major thing is that you have to be moving throughout the day. You have to, it's not about going to the gym. It's not about getting abs. You can't get abs when you're pregnant anyway. It's not about, you know, the buff biceps. It's about incorporating movement into your day. And so many of us spend all day sitting or all day standing, but not moving in a healthy way. And, you know, I love Ina May Gaskin, the midwife, and how um, you might have seen the documentary that was made about the farm, but she just goes against the wall of, you know, and she says to the woman in the prenatal visit, come on, let's go do some squats, you know, and she's like 70 years old or something. And she's like, come on, let's do them, you know, one, you know, and hopefully your <laughs> listeners are all going to stand up right now, shake out their legs and start doing some squats. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we need to do. And it, it doesn't have to be, 
you know, you don't have to climb a mountain and you don't have to, you know, whatever. It's just if you can dance, if you can be making love, if you can be walking, if you can be sitting and standing and working in your garden, like all that kind of stuff. And the thing is like, it is labor. There is a reason why having a baby is called labor. You're going to be working hard. It's hard work. And, you know, the more you can prepare yourself for that, and that has to do with, you know, being strong and fit and exercising in a way that's more, you know, all day long moving movement. Um, I love that. Yeah. Eating um, real food and moving your body. Um, things that we seem to have forgotten in our modern lives. That's a fantastic um, recommendations two and three. Um, let's move into um, this corporatizing of America, um, but even corporatizing and commoditizing of, of the birth process and certainly of the preparing for baby process. Baby showers have become this um, dubious ritual in the U.S. whereby everyone that you know is expected to spend an exorbitant amount of money buying essentially more plastic for your household. Um, I mean, I know that that probably isn't going to help you be a better parent. Can you tell us more about um, your research around the stuff of baby? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the hard thing is that, you know, um, well, the good news is that pregnancy is usually a change point for people. Like there are, you know, the, the marketing world spends a huge amount of time studying when are people most open to change? Because if you're open to change, then you're open to being, um, advertised to, right? You're open to new products and they want to get you from cradle to grave. So how do they do that? And pregnancy is a change, getting married is a change point, graduating from college, getting pregnant, having a baby. Those are all change points. And the bad news about that is that you're very susceptible to marketing. So when your doctor, when you go to a prenatal appointment to, to confirm a pregnancy and your doctor says, congratulations, you're pregnant and hands you a goodie bag that contains formula, actual branded formula that that doctor was given for free by a very nice looking sales person at a free lunch that, you know, for their office. And they, and then you say, well, wait a second, I don't, I'm going to breastfeed because of course we know from over literally over a thousand peer reviewed scientific studies, we know that breastfeeding is one of the best things you can ever do for a child for their short-term and long-term health and also for you as a mother, your short-term and long-term health. And you say to the doctor, I'm going to breastfeed. And the doctor says, oh, well, you just need this just in case. And what you don't realize as a, as a person is that you're, you think you're a, you know, a pregnant woman and, they, you, and, and the world, the corporate world is looking at you as a consumer and they want to brand you or they want you to get their brand. And, you know, the, the truth is, is that babies need very little. They need a healthy centered mom to be there with them and do skin to skin and a supported mom, you know, someone who's got a really good support network and, um, and, and babies need your time. They need your love. They do not need any newfangled plastic product of any kind. They really don't. They don't even need diapers, shocking as that might seem. Um, you know, it's like the diaper sandwich, whatever cake that they have at these baby showers are a complete waste of time and they're totally harmful for the planet. Um, you know, and they don't need a bassinet and they don't need a stroller. They just need you. And so 
you know, if people really want to help uh, pregnant women and, and new moms, the, the problem is we have a system where we don't even have, we can't even take time off for five minutes. You know, like I, with my firstborn again, I went back to work almost immediately. I was a professor. I was teaching at Emory University and I, I got the first, you know, speeding ticket of my adult life because I was speeding home to go feed my baby, nurse my baby between classes. And the cop was like, I said, I need to get home to my newborn. And the cop was like, yeah, your newborn needs a, a mother who's alive. And, you know, he was nasty about it, but he was right. Like I shouldn't have been speeding in the car, but I was in a situation where I was forced to go back to work in order to make a living. Um, you know, so I mean, it can be wonderful to have a ritual around a birth, you know, where you get together and you maybe do some henna and everybody contributes, um, you know, their wishes and their love and their support and you set up a food train. A food train is the best thing. Like, don't skip all that stuff and get everyone you know to sign up for a day to bring you food every other day or every third day because they'll always make too much and you be very specific about what your needs are and you tell them that they have to splurge on organic and that you don't like green peppers, whatever, you know, like it's your time to be quote selfish because that's, you gotta be, you have to give people the gift of letting them take care of you. That's the kind yeah. of stuff where the community can really come together. Buying plastic crap made in China is doing nothing for you as a new mom. Or the environment. Um, I love it. You're just bringing us into that notion of um, a baby moon, which is um, practiced since the beginning of time in most traditional cultures, that the new mother is not expected to rejoin society right away, that they know that it's harmful to her body and her emotions and her heart. Um, certainly rejoining society and being separate from her baby is quite disturbing um, because it's like we have, we call it the invisible cord. So even though we cut the cord at birth, mom and baby are still connected spiritually. Um, and that they, they're, it's easiest when they're connected physically as well. And this baby moon um, is being re-enlivened in our modern culture, finally, in this awareness that um, we need to set aside time to get to know this new human who just arrived. Um, to get to know ourselves as the new incantation of who we are. Um, who you were before you had a baby is not who you are after. And this baby moon traditionally lasted 40 days. Yeah, Can which imagine? is wonderful. But, you know, but the other thing is what's so hard for parents today, new parents, young parents, is that is that it's not that you should be in your house by yourself and, you know, your baby, because you can't, like, how do you take a shower when you just had a baby? Like, you need helping hands, loving, helping hands with you. And it's hard because a lot of people don't live with their, you know, in community or they don't live with their um, close by to their parents and, you know, and then there's all those other people who have difficult relationships with them. So that's why when we were talking earlier and I was saying trying to surround yourself with people who are really supportive and loving is huge. It's going to help your overall mental and physical health. And, you know, there's a very true reality to that. It's, it's hard to have a baby. Um, you can have the most incredible birth of your life and just know that you are a badass mama and you just did it. And then, you know, you're so flooded with so many hormones. You've got leaking breasts. You've got, you know, you potentially have all sorts of things coming out of all sorts of orifices and you're trying to adjust to what it's like to be a mom and understand, are you, you know, what, do you still feel sexy? Are you still a woman? Like, what are you doing? What's your body for? You know, and there's so many adjustments and we need to support each other during that time. So, 
I love the idea of a baby moon. And I know that people who stay home, you know, women who are lucky enough to stay home also sometimes end up feeling incredibly lonely and sort of lost because they're by themselves. We don't want humans are, despite COVID-19 and all this crazy stuff that's going on, humans thrive in community. They don't thrive in isolation. And especially new moms need to not be isolated because that's when you can get really you know, bad postpartum depression. And that's something that doulas and midwives are really good at because there's postpartum doulas who can come and help you and be at your house and do your laundry for you. My God, just having someone come over and do a, a load of laundry is an incredible thing. Or if you've got a toddler picking up after them, you know, and then postpartum, and then postpartum something wonderful that I think a lot of people who have never had a home birth don't realize is that it's not like with your obstetrician, they say, okay, you had your baby, see you later, maybe come back for a it's six It's actually weeks. say you in six weeks, right? I'm right, see you in just, six weeks yeah. and I'll check your stitches or I'll check your whatever. It's, you know, the, the wonderful thing about, about midwives is that they see the whole person and they realize that even after the baby's born that the mama needs some support. And so, I mean, I just remember the midwives coming in checking on us, you know, staying after the baby was born, but then also coming back and seeing how things were going. And they'd come back a day later, maybe two days later, maybe a week later. And it was always so wonderful. That's the kind of thing that we, so even if you have a doctor and you give birth in a more conventional way, you have to make sure that people are coming to help you. Mm. Yeah. It, it brings up so many, like so many other parts, you know, it's like, and then we have no maternal um, leave in this country. We have no paid maternal leave. And then, um, you know, we have this selling formula. And then, uh, you know, uh, food desert. And, uh, you know, it's like there's so many systemic problems. It's, it's hard to even come up with the solutions that are certainly not universally usable, but even majority usable because yeah. everyone is in such different situations. Well, we do need a systems change. And, you know, in, in my book, Your Baby, Your Way, I expose the systems in order so that we can change them. But in the meantime, since they aren't changing and we don't have, you know, paid leave and we don't have the help that we need and we don't have subsidized childcare and all those kinds of things that I think we would be much better off if we did, we have to hack the system, right? And, and change, it, change it to the best of our ability as we can. But I think the first step really is awareness because once you know the forces that you're up against, um, I yeah. think that can really help. And I hope that we'll have time. Um, but, you know, because we were talking about toxic motherhood, you know, there's also the very real problem of the toxins that we're being exposed to, that our children are being exposed to, that our bodies are being exposed to, and that our doctors and even sometimes midwives and nurse practitioners are recommending because they're uninformed or uneducated about the harm that those toxins are doing. So I don't know if we have time to talk about that, obviously. We absolutely do. Um, and that was certainly my next um, question is, um, there's some, there's, there's these systems level changes and there's this general recommendation of like, hang out with people that actually are kind to you and, and listen to you, eat real food, move your body, you know, discover your own internal well of strength, trust your intuition, like all these things. But then there's some really basic nuts and bolts reality of things that you should avoid in our world. Can you go into that? You've done, um, you've done a lot of research on this. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there are some pretty major ones, and I'll just a couple of them. Um, you know, one of the 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 most harmful things that your doctor might recommend to you is to take Tylenol, and we have this completely wrong notion that Tylenol is safe during pregnancy and Tylenol is safe for babies. And if there is one single thing that you can do besides changing your SAD, meaning standard American diet, changing your SAD diet to a happy diet, it would be to avoid toxics like acetaminophen. So acetaminophen is the main ingredient in Tylenol. The problem with acetaminophen is that it depletes the body of glutathione. Glutathione is like nature's mop. Glutathione binds with toxins and gets them out of your system. So you never wanna do something that would deplete your body of glutathione. So here's what's interesting. When a, when a pregnant, we know from several scientific studies that this is that, that the, the amount of um, Tylenol that a woman takes during pregnancy and the frequency is correlated with all of these negative health outcomes in children, right, in, in her offspring, including, I mean, all of them. The, the main ones are it's correlated with autism and it's correlated with asthma. And, but what's interesting is that we've only really studied this in pregnant women. We have not been studying it in newborn babies. And if you have a baby in the hospital, it's very, very likely that someone is going to try to give you and give your baby Tylenol. And when a woman is pregnant, she has two things protecting her baby. She has her own liver. So Tylenol is toxic to your liver. And everybody knows that because if you even just have a double dose of Tylenol, like you have it in um, cough syrup, and then you also take some because you have a headache, you can actually go into liver failure. If you look it up on Google, you will see that people use Tylenol to commit suicide. So that's one of the first hits you'll get because it's an easy way to really hurt your body. So people know that that's accepted in the mainstream. But unfortunately, pediatricians recommend Tylenol to children under six months because they say, well, kids cannot have ibuprofen because we know we don't think it's safe for kids under six months, babies under six months to have ibuprofen. But when a woman is pregnant, she has her liver protecting the baby and she has the placenta protecting the baby. So we actually think that the negative effects of Tylenol are much, 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 much more pronounced when a baby, a newborn or a little child is given Tylenol. So one of the major toxins you really want to avoid is Tylenol. Another one, which I know sounds weird because it, unless you're, you know, unless your listeners have really looked into this, they're going to say, wait, toxic and Tylenol? How can you put that in the same sentence? It's in over 600 over-the-counter and prescription medications, how could this possibly be bad for you? And unfortunately, the research keeps coming in. There is such a growing body of research showing that. Two other things that both start with A. So there's acetaminophen that you want to avoid, the main ingredient in Tylenol. The other one is antibiotics. You absolutely need to stay away from antibiotics. You don't want to take them when you're pregnant, and you do not ever want to give them to your baby. And the reason why is because antibiotics are against bacteria, right? And the problem is, is that we have bacteria in us and on us and bacteria, the good beneficial bacteria are our first line of defense for so many of the systems in our bodies, especially our immune system. So if you're depleting your body of your, of your quote, bad bacteria, meaning infectious bacteria, you're also hurting the good bacteria. And if you hurt the good bacteria, you're compromising your body's ability to fight off disease. So whenever you can, you have to avoid antibiotics. And then you have to say, well, but wait a second, I can't avoid antibiotics because my child has an ear infection or because I have this or my, you know, I, my doctor said that. And 
the good news is that there are many healthy, helpful alternatives. First of all, you can prevent those things in the first place, and part of that goes back to your diet, eating really healthy, not eating sugar, and um, and eating a probiotic, a prebiotic and a probiotic diet, meaning eating a diet that really feeds all your good bacteria, you're gonna keep yourself in balance. But also there's all sorts of wonderful alternatives. If your child does have an ear infection, First of all, you cannot treat it, which is what they do in Europe. They wait to treat them. They don't rush in to treat them. Ear infections are often overdiagnosed. That means your, your pediatrician can tell you that your child has an ear infection when he or she doesn't. That happened to me. I had a child who needed to nap. The pediatrician had us waiting for 45 minutes and you know because they always are running late. My child was screaming. We walk into the room and the pediatrician says to me, oh, I think she's got an ear infection and has she been pulling on her ears? And I said, no. And the pediatrician says, oh, here you go. Here's something for the pain and here's a prescription for antibiotics because the pediatrician looked into my child's ear. The eardrum looked red, pink, and of course it did because she'd been screaming because she was crying. She didn't have an ear infection. She didn't need those antibiotics. If I had not been so savvy and I had given my child those antibiotics, I would be setting her up for all sorts of other problems down the line. So you need to avoid acetaminophen, you need to avoid antibiotics, and you also need to avoid aluminum. And, you know, aluminum is a highly, highly neurotoxic, um, and yes, it's highly neurotoxic, and yes, it is a bit ubiquitous. You know, people will say, oh, well, there's aluminum in breast milk, and there's aluminum in formula, and this is true. There is a little bit, but ingested aluminum is very, very different from, it, from um, injected aluminum, and my concern is that we use aluminum as an adjuvant in vaccines, and we are overloading our children with vaccines. So this is a problem of over-vaccination. It's not a debate about whether or not you should do all vaccines or some vaccines or no vaccines. It's a question of aluminum is a known neurotoxin. There is aluminum in injected vaccines. You have to be really careful, which means you need to only do one aluminum containing shot at a time. You can safely delay vaccinations as long as you're exclusively breastfeeding and your child's not in daycare. Um, you can always go back and do them later if you decide not to do them right away. But if your child has a neurological reaction, has an encephalitis or an encephalopathy because of the overload of injected aluminum, you can't ever undo that damage. So, you know, one thing I would say if you want to, if you want to embrace sort of gentle pregnancy, gentle birth and gentle parenting is you you take things slow. You take it slower. And the problem is we're giving children antibiotics at birth, we're giving them a hepatitis B shot at birth, which is for a sexually transmitted disease that no midwife on earth would ever be giving to a child who's not born in the hospital. And then we also give children a vitamin K shot, which also some of the brands of vitamin K contain aluminum. So if you start adding up the cumulative totals of aluminum, oh, and then we dose that same kid with acetaminophen, which I said earlier, may, compromises the body's ability to detox. So you give highly toxic chemicals to a child, right, and metals, and then you take away biochemically their ability to detox, and you get this huge, you know, explosion of problems, and we see that with the health of America's children. So if I could tell your listeners <laughs> how to avoid the toxic part of motherhood, I would tell them to avoid those A's, aluminum, acetaminophen, mm -hmm. and antibiotics. 
It's so brilliant. Um, and, and the way that this all comes together, it's, it takes such a multidisciplinary approach. Um, like the person thinking about each one of these issues didn't think about the whole repercussions, but this is what I love about your investigative journalism is that you're looking at all these parts, um, really bringing them together for people. And the, that's just such a great concrete recommendation. Um, I, I know that you also believe antibiotics can save lives, um, but it's very unlikely that small children born on time need the quantity of antibiotics that are currently being dosed. My general rule of thumb was that if my child was so sick they needed to be hospitalized, I would consider antibiotics. But if we were still happy at home or unhappy at home, but um, you know, dealing with, with home remedies, then we really didn't need it. Um, we've sort of lost our ability to trust the body's self-healing mechanisms. Um, and I love that recommendation to just say no to the antibiotics. And in Europe, they do um, recommend that babies give them lots of time and they'll heal it themselves. Um, you brought up a really interesting and controversial topic in vaccines. You wrote a book called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan um, with Dr. Paul Thomas, who's a pediatrician in Oregon. Um, and has a fantastic YouTube channel if you want to, you know, geek out on this fun, fun uh, pediatrician going <laughs> visit to visit. He's fun to watch. Um, <clears throat> but, but you make such a sensible point. Um, you and I actually were in the vaccine war documentary on Frontline many, many years ago. And that show and many others since then have polarized this debate, have made it this vaccine war that there's anti-vaxxers and there's pro-science people. And it's like, um, that's so simplistic to a very nuanced and complex topic. Um, and one of them is this idea, like forget about the safety of vaccines and the debate about that and go to the reality that, that there are other toxins in the environment that are preventing the body from, from detoxing. And that doesn't even go into the MTHFR gene mutation and how that is affecting the body's ability to handle this onslaught of toxic environments. Um, I, I love this book because it finds the middle ground. Um, there's, there's no don't do anything recommendations. There's really, here are all the choices. Here's how we can find a safe way through. And for me, for years, talking with families, I've been counseling families for 20 years on this decision. Um, <clears throat> I always say, look, America is not the only country to have figured out how to help safe, you know, raise safe children. <clears throat> and in fact, we haven't figured it out very well. There are vaccine schedules in other countries that are vastly different than the US and those countries don't have any higher rates of those communicable diseases. So it's really important to get out of our bubble and think in a much broader perspective. That's what you've done with this book, The Vaccine Friendly Plan, highly recommend it. Um, and then um, you wrote the book, The Business of Baby, um, really uh, unpeeling um, how we're corporately advertised to and how uh, babies have been commoditized and all these things, which is a very fascinating read. Um, and then the book that we're mostly talking about today is this Your Baby, Your Way book, which helps parents navigate these many, many decisions. Um, we've talked about many of them today. We've talked about many of the solutions. Before we wrap up, I, I want to kind of go to you and say, um, is there any other piece of information that you feel like um, pregnant people or new parents need to have 
Um, yeah, I love that question. I, I should explain one thing just for your listeners, which is that um, the business of baby, which came out in 2013, Your Baby, Your Way, is actually the business of baby kind of repackaged with a different title and a different introduction. The, the introduction is much more towards pregnant women and kind of empowering moms because my publishers felt like the original um, introduction to the business of baby was too scary. I, it, was, it was comparing outcomes in different countries and showing sort of how bad it is in America. And they wanted us to do something a little bit more upbeat and different. So it's, it's a revised and edited and kind of updated book of the business of baby. But, um, but I think that's something that is really often missing um, from these conversations is that it's, is, is, that when you're pregnant and when you're doing this transition from, you know, from being a woman to being a mother, you're still a woman, but you're a kind of a new permutation is that it's really okay to have fun and feel joy and that it's such a joyous and beautiful and amazing time. And you can be as kooky and quacky and whatever the word is that you want, if that means dancing naked under the stars or, you know, just having fun with it. And what I like to tell people now, like when I see that they're, that they're pregnant and they're going to have their, you know, people who are afraid of labor, the thing that I want them to know is I say to them, you're going to have so much fun. And they look at me like I just said, you're going to have a baby with 10 heads. Like, what are you talking about? Nobody ever told me that labor can be fun. But the thing is, is that it's this powerful and amazing thing that your body does. And if you can just be curious about it and interested in it and watching it. And also if you have a partner, um, you know, just remember that it took love. You had to make love to get the baby in there. And so it's kind of an act of making love to get the baby out. And it's so fun to watch those sort of orgasmic birth videos and, you know, see um, women smooching with their partners um, and just really, you know, your senses are heightened. You're, you see and you smell in a way. I'm not someone who's done psychedelic drugs, but I've heard that it's very similar <laughs> to like, you know, how you all of a sudden understand this cosmic connection that you have. And I remember when I was in labor with my fourth child. So I, I told you all that I did this sort of like, I'm going to be so centered and I'm going to be in the bathtub and whatever. And I was more, I made these unbelievable grunting primal animal sounds that have never come out of me in my life. I mean, what's interesting is that when a woman is in labor making noises, they're often making similar noises to when they're making love, which is probably something that you have seen many times, Augustine, because it is like you're making love to get the baby out of your body. But there I was kind of like doing these primal grunts and I would just, it was, I was be consumed with the contraction and then I'd be totally normal. I could talk about the stock market. Like I, in between those contractions, I was just like, and I, I was just there with my husband and I looked at him, I go, is this getting you worried? Like, cause it was so out of character. It wasn't how any of my other pregnancies births had gone. And he's like, no, I'm fine. He was just totally right there with me. And that's beautiful. You know, it was amazing. And it was fun. And that's the thing is that I love to remind people now that if you don't, if you just get away from the fear that you've been inculcated to believe, you can actually just enjoy yourself. And, and there's joy in any kind of birth, whether it's a, you know, an unassisted natural birth or a birth with midwives or a, or a birth center birth or a really medicalized birth or a C-section birth. You can, any, in, the, in any of those scenarios, you can have a lot of joy. That's so beautiful. I love that recommendation. What a great place to end on. Mm -hmm. I was just reading a book actually by Mark Harris. It's called Men, Love, and Birth. And he's a male midwife in the UK. 
and he did a lot of research um, and, and he wrote this really beautiful quote. He said, I, I think it can be understood that orgasm and birth are one event separated by time. And I think <laughs> if we look at it that way, doesn't it change the relationship to birth so much? Absolutely. I, I, just, I really love that quote. Um, and of course, I think he based a lot of his research on Michelle O'Dant and his original book, um, the scientification of love and the farmer and the obstetrician and the function of the orgasm. What a, what a guy. He wrote some fascinating books. But um, your book, um, Your Baby, Your Way, is really exceptional. Um, I think it's kind of required reading for all families in the American culture. There's so much to unravel, so much to unpack. Um, and and to end with, with uh, finding joy, knowing there's joy, expecting joy. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I wanted to have a conversation um, with Keisha about um, the, the legal piece because we've run up against this culture now that is not allowing. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've as we centered the yeah. OB, centered the doctor, now they're not allowing women to choose or parents to choose um, what, what they want. And I just... I, you are such a voice of reason around this particular issue. As you listen to Jennifer talking about all of these real and natural holistic ways to find your joy and to re-empower yourself and actually to be healthy, um, what's the guidance around the legal piece um, that we're seeing in our culture? Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I threw a us in lot the of, oh gosh. cauldron. A lot of things come to mind. I think first and foremost, understand the lingo. If you're going into a battle, you need to understand who the enemy is. That sounds so bad that they're the enemy, but you know what I mean? You need to understand what informed consent is. You need to understand what informed refusal is. You need to know what AMA is against medical advice. Little things like that. So when you are in that moment, the doctor realizes they are talking to someone who knows just as much, if not more than they do. Knowledge is power at the end of the day. And if you're choosing that type of birth, or even if you're not choosing it, because sometimes that's just what we get, you have to empower yourself and you have to be your own advocate ask questions, interview your doctor. You know, I just spoke to my cousin. I'm like, well, you know, have you talked to your doctor about whether or not he likes to induce? I mean, or is this going to be a scheduled birth? What are the breastfeeding rates? What are his cesarean rates? There's a whole host of questions that you can ask and why not ask, Hey, why didn't you ask me about nutrition? I mean, is that important to you? I think it's important. You know, let's, let's demand better care. Why did we ever shift from the doctor delivers your baby after caring for you for nine months to you get the on-call doctor? I still can't wrap my mind around how we as a society thought, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Sounds good. Well, I don't think we did. I think the insurance companies who make money found a way to make it cheaper so they can make more money. Maybe so, but I have a feeling there wasn't much protest. I don't know. It's a whole nother debate right there. Well, um, I want to put up a scenario because, you know, I love real, really nuts and bolts kind of recommendations. So um, 
following Jennifer's advice and their own research, somebody decides, actually, um, some of these choices are not right for me. And they go into their prenatal or they go into their pediatric appointment and they say, informed and no thank you. What do they do, Keisha, when the doctor says, um, but this is required, you might kill your baby, you might be in danger, you might, what do they do? I think it helps if you just reiterate what you want, if you tell them to document it, and if you have someone there to support you, have someone there to back you up. That's good. I I say don't go into any scenario like that alone. I I have someone with you, a part, your partner, whoever, that's just practical, you know, off the cuff advice, but no, I think it is. I mean, that's what we're looking for is practical, usable advice. Um, Thank you both for your commitment to uh, this conversation, to these solutions. Um, Jennifer, thank you for joining us. It was a great pleasure to hear from you. Um, You are such a wealth of information. Luckily, you put your wisdom in books that people can buy and they're available all over the internet. Uh, Thanks again. Appreciate it. Great to hear your voice. Thanks so much for having me, Augustine and Keisha. Nice to meet you. Thank you.